0: My name is Kathy Lyons. I'm a member of the Cancer Control Program, and today it's my great privilege and pleasure to introduce our grand round speakers, Tim Aulis. Dr. Aulis received his Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the State University of New York at Albany, and from 1992 to 2006, Dr. Aulis was the director of the Center for Psychooncology Research here at Dartmouth. While here, he developed and tested cognitive behavioral interventions designed to improve symptom management for cognitive problems, pain, and sleep disorders, and interventions to reduce stress associated with cancer and cancer treatments. In 2006, he moved to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center to develop the Neurocognitive Research Laboratory. His research team examines cognitive changes associated with cancer and cancer treatments. At Memorial Sloan Kettering, he's a psychological liaison to the Neurology Service and to the Brain Tumor Center, and he's a member of many scientific and medical societies. He has many accolades and achievements, but he didn't want me to go on and on listing them, so I will respect that and just say we're really delighted to have Tim back with us uh, for a day or two to review the state of the science regarding cognitive effects of cancer and cancer treatment. But before I let him take over, I have a little bit more housekeeping. I need to read the following conflict of interest statement. Tim Allis does not have any financial interests. He reports that he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. He attests that he's not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. At the end of the presentation, he'll be taking questions and answers. And finally, as a reminder, to get CME credit, please be sure to sign in at the end of the session. So with great pleasure, I introduce Dr. Tim Hollis. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. and It's great to be back and to look out and see uh, many old friends and colleagues. most of us are a little grayer than uh, when I when I left. I Hard to believe that it's been eight years since uh, since I uh, was here. But I spent uh, 20 20 great years here at Dartmouth. Uh, it was really sort of the formative uh, uh, time of my my professional career. So, uh, trying to uh, maybe give you a bit of an update on how we have kind of carried that forward. Some of the work that was started here at, at Dartmouth down uh, down at Memorial could be. Uh, Giving a bit of an overview of cognitive of, uh, changes associated with cancer and cancer treatments, and going to be really focusing most of my comments on uh, cognitive effects of adjuvant therapy for breast cancer, because that's where most of my work has been, and actually most of the work in the field has has been done. Although this is a much broader area, as you might have, as you think about it, there's all the way from people with brain tumors and uh, actual brain pathology, surgery, cranial radiation to uh, uh, you know, men with prostate cancer who are getting hormone ablation therapy. So it's a, it's quite a, a broad area actually. Um, so, this is what uh, Kathy just read. I don't have any. I actually do have financial interests, but just nothing relevant to this. Mostly in the, in the, in the, in the, in the realm of how do I get my kids off the dole? But, uh, but okay, all right. All right, so why, why is this an important area to study? Well, I probably don't have to spend a lot of time convincing this audience. It's, it's clearly a, a, a challenge for cancer survivors. Uh, and It's been identified by a variety of, of survivorship groups, including National Coalition of Cancer Survivors. Um, cognitive changes can have a, a negative impact on quality of life, ability to return to school, uh, ability to return to work. I mean, in this era of informed decision making, people are coming in with, you know, their reams of information from the internet, asking questions about not only what is what are my chances of survival, but what are the, what are the long-term consequences of these treatments going to be? And uh, any any of you who are are clinicians uh, hear this uh, r- often from day one. Um, this work really started with pediatric. Uh, uh, populations when we started getting cures for uh, childhood leukemia, lymphoma. uh, There was was the good news of the cures, but the recognition that some of these treatments were causing very severe uh, cognitive and developmental disabilities, started modifying treatments so that efficacy was maintained. But some of the cognitive side effects have certainly been reduced. Unfortunately, they haven't, haven't gone away completely. And ultimately, so in the adult population, we're hoping to do similar work in terms of identifying potential uh, interventions or strategies to prevent these problems. Now, this has gotten a lot of press recently. You might think that this is a relatively recent problem, but you know, some people, some names you might recognize, Peter Silverfarb sitting right there, uh, published this back in, in 1980, so this was work that was being done in the 70s. So certainly Peter and uh, Tom Oxman and Jimmy Holland have been talking about this issue for, for many decades. But really, the, the sort of, you know, kind of more intensive uh, uh, investigation or scientific study of this topic probably began somewhere in the mid-1990s. So when we talk about cognitive problems, what are the, what are the sort of issues that, that are frequently brought up? Uh, memory and concentration are probably the most common. Uh, executive functions, so what people tell you is that I can't multitask. Right? And you know, I get distracted. I go from one thing to another. I never get anything done. I start something in one room. The phone rings. I'm talking on the phone, or I see the dishes need to get done. Start the dishes, something else happens. So they just talk about moving from one thing to another. And you know, as you might imagine, for people who have any uh, you know, professional roles or jobs, I mean, multitasking is sort of the name of the game in, in, our, in our society today. So this is, can be really disruptive. Many people find that they have difficulty with learning new material, reading comprehension. It's not that they can't learn. But they say, you know, I used to read something once and understand it. Now I have to read it two or three times for it to sink in. Okay, So efficiency goes down, uh, ability to work with numbers. The, the thing I hear all the time is people say, I used to be able to, to I, can't, I can't do the, the tip at a restaurant in my head anymore. I just can't, you know. Relatively simple math, but I can't do it. I have to have someone else do it. I have to pull out a calculator. So those are the kinds of things that you hear people say. Now. These are, you know, relatively subtle in the sense that, um, you know, if you talk to many cancer survivors, you wouldn't even really recognize that they're having any kind of cognitive difficulties. But these things emerge as uh, stress and deadlines and pressure uh, ratchet up very often. Um, Typically, you know, so we look at what what are the kind of patterns of cognitive problems. You know, during treatment, many people have problems because they're not feeling well. They're anemic. They're fatigued. They're losing their hair. They're distressed. It's not surprising, but um, but for many people, those cognitive issues begin to resolve over time following treatment. And if it were just a, an acute problem, we wouldn't really even be you know I would be standing here having these le- this lecture. But it's the fact that for a certain subgroup of people. Um, there are persistent cognitive problems that seem to, uh, seem to not go away over years, as we'll discuss. So it's very often that people will say, well, I, I, I started improving and I thought I was on the road back to recovery, but then I hit this plateau and then I sort of stayed at 70, 80 percent of my, what, I, my, what I feel like was my former cognitive capacity. As I mentioned, it's often made worse by multitasking, stress, pressure deadlines. And you know, as I said, we used to think that this was a fairly stable phenomenon that you would, uh, you know, once you get recovered to a certain point, you would just stay at that level. But there's actually relatively recent information from uh, Jeff Waefel at uh, MD Anderson that there you can identify people, a subgroup of people, who actually continue to deteriorate over time. So um, you know, if you follow people closely enough there is a pattern of uh, uh, de- continued deterioration for some individuals. So when you study cognition, there are different ways you can, you can look at it. You, you self-report uh, what people tell us. There's formal neuropsychological testing, where you actually you know, put the people through a battery of tests that assess the full r- array of domains of cognitive functioning. And then the newer data looking at imaging, so structural and functional MRI and PET. And there's a growing uh, literature in animal models of, of cognitive effects of chemotherapy and other cancer treatments. So we'll briefly touch on all of these. Um, so if you look at the, the, the literature using self-report questionnaires, as I said, almost 100% of people will tell you they're having cognitive problems during treatment. Um, but as many as as high as 50% will tell you that they're having ongoing or persistent cognitive problems greater than a a year over treatment. Now, it's important to listen to what people are telling us, and and, we'll sort of get into this as we progress through the the talk, the relationship of of self-report to to actual performance and then to imaging-based data. But one of the difficulties with, self-report is it it tends not to correlate very well with formal neuropsychological testing, and it actually correlates much more closely with measures of depression, anxiety, distress. So it's not that it's, it's not important, because we do need to listen to it. It's probably a marker that there is something going on, but if you're really trying to understand sort of brain behavior relationships, uh, you know, self-report has some uh, limitations. So if you look at the... Uh, the uh, data using formal neuropsychological testing. This this area started off doing, there were investigators, including the group here at, at Dartmouth, uh, did a, a, a group of cross-sectional studies looking at long-term survivors and comparing patients exposed to chemotherapy to those not exposed to chemotherapy, to healthy control groups often. And there seemed to be, you know, quite a wide range, a, 17 to 75 percent of patients experiencing cognitive problems. Uh, Part of that is that 75 percent was right at the end of treatment, there's variation in treatment, age of patients, uh, et cetera, et cetera, so there's a fair amount of uh, variability there. And, of course, the problem with these cross-sectional post-treatment studies is you have no idea of how the person was functioning prior to treatment, so maybe they had their deficits before for other reasons, and you're just measuring it now, and there's been no effect of their cancer treatment, or maybe they've gone from sort of you know genius level to mere mortal level in terms of cognitive functioning, and it looks like you're saying, well, you're functioning normally. So many of us thought, well, okay, we need to do longitudinal studies. We need to start looking at assessing these folks pre-treatment and then following them over time. Uh, so as in a lot of areas of research, once you start you know, doing more interesting, more sophisticated designs, some interesting results pop out. So one of the first surprises was uh, that we and others found that 20 to 25% of of individuals, prior to starting their aspirin treatment, had lower than expected cognitive performance based on age, education, occupation. And it didn't seem to be related to I mean, initially, we thought, well, they're distressed. They're upset. So we tried to co-vary out depression, anxiety, measures of stress. Nothing seemed to take the effect away. I said, so, well, it must be surgery, right, Eric? Because we're assessing people post-surgery, but prior to beginning and chemotherapy. So we had, you know, I had an army of poor research assistants combing through charts getting um, uh, you know, data on number of surgeries type of anesthesia, time under anesthesia, none of that correlated. So it seems like uh, that it isn't, isn't ob- explained by any variable that we can identify. And this has been replicated across a number of groups and actually a number of cancer diagnoses. So it, it seems like this is a real issue. And we'll talk a bit more about this later, but it sort of implies that perhaps the cancer itself has some impact on cognitive functioning perhaps through some kind of immune modulated mechanism or there, there may be coexisting risk factors for development of cancer and mild cognitive changes over time since you know, cancer is a disease of the elderly so we're studying almost by definition folks who, are, you know, who have been uh, alive for a significant period of time. Um, when you look at the, the, the actual post-treatment effects not as the the percentages aren't as high it seems like more like 15 to 20 percent of patients have these persistent cognitive changes so now you're comparing their baseline treat to their post-treatment performance it's you know somewhat understandably or not surprisingly somewhat less although some people have found as high as 60 percent in other populations but there have probably been nearly 30 longitudinal studies at this point uh, uh, and fairly most of them have found uh, evidence for a subgroup of people who uh, experience cognitive deficits a year to two years post treatment. So there's, you know, we're amassing a fair amount of data to suggest that theres there's really something going on here, at least in this subgroup. So, you know everybody calls this chemo brain and I've been, Trying to get this out of the lexicon forever, but, but it still persists. But it really, uh, so there's, there's newer data to suggest that perhaps endocrine therapies, both in terms of things like tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, and then in another population, men who are getting uh, hormone ablation therapy for their prostate cancer, are also experiencing similar kinds of cognitive problems. So you disrupt the hormonal yeah. milieu, Estrogen and testosterone are are critical for cognitive functioning. In, in fact, and particularly in, for women in terms of uh, memory, and men in terms of visual spatial uh, abilities, testosterone is quite important. So it's not surprising that these treatments would also impact uh, uh, cognitive functioning. So you know, looks like we have the cancer, we have the chemotherapy, we have endocrine therapy. There's a recent paper to suggest that what we call local radiation maybe isn't so local and that there may be a systemic effect um, and and, and a cognitive effect of of, uh, radiation to the breast and breast cancer patients. So, you know, we thought we were studying cognitive effects of chemotherapy initially, but in retrospect that was really fairly naive, I think, because we, you know, if you think about breast cancer as the example, Surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, endocrine therapies. I mean, we're studying that whole package of treatments. Is sort of the way I, I would view it at this time. So, if it's a, if it's a subgroup of of people who are experiencing cognitive problems, what makes people vulnerable? Um, so, age is one obvious uh, factor. You know. We're Uh, Our brain ages, and you would expect that an older brain would be more vulnerable to any kind of insult. There's also this concept of cognitive reserve that has been shown to be uh, uh, important in areas like Alzheimer's. So people with high cognitive reserve who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's have less severe uh, symptomatology than people with low cognitive reserve. And you can think about it a bit like the old concept of IQ, but it's not just... Genetics—it's not just what you're born with, but it can be influenced or it can be built through um, education, uh, occupation, hobbies that are, you know, kind of has some an intellectual component to them. So people can build cognitive reserve through, you know, probably the most important years are, are childhood and adolescence, but we can continue to to build cognitive reserve. And you may have read that, you know, people who older people who have uh, remain active, who uh, have uh, intellectual hobbies or volunteer or social activities, tend to that those all those things tend to be protective in terms of, of, uh, of cognitive functioning. So we were interested in looking at well, is it is there any evidence to suggest that age and cognitive reserve uh, may interact uh, in terms of predicting who's at risk for cognitive decline post chemotherapy or post treatment in breast cancer and basically it's a very busy slide but this is looking at our measure of processing speed that sort of looks at how quickly can you process information and essentially this group right here is the older group who had low cognitive reserve and this is sort of Change since baseline, so they decline. Everyone else is basically improving. That one subgroup is declining. So there's some evidence that there are things we can measure that seem to confer uh, vulnerability to some of these cognitive changes, and may explain uh, why uh, that subgroup of people are uh, are vulnerable to these effects. As I said, um, folks are. Uh, Using uh, advanced imaging techniques to study uh, cognitive effects of uh, uh, cancer treatments. Uh, Andy Saken and Brenda McDonald were here at Dartmouth at the same time. We're part of the same group. We were started, once we started seeing some of these changes on, on, on neuropsychological tests, we started looking at them using a variety of imaging techniques. Um, so there's increasing evidence that you can see, Changes in both structure and function uh, in in the brain post-cancer treatments, both in gray and in white matter. There's also some evidence that from EEG studies that you see changes in uh, parameters that assess the efficiency of the information processing system, like P300. Now let me just walk you through a couple of examples of of what this looks like. so some of you may remember Rob Ferguson. He was also here in the department uh, at the time, uh, and he was actually ex- developing a cognitive behavioral intervention for uh, cognitive decline post chemotherapy. He was talking to this woman, and she she happened to mention that she had a, a twin sister. He said, "Wow, is that is she an identical twin?" He said, "She said yes, she is." He said, "Wow, wouldn't that be..." Wonder uh, you think she'd be willing to? She, did she ever have cancer? No, she's never had cancer. No, no health problems. Um, you think she'd be willing to kind of go through the similar assessment that we're doing? Oh, I'm sure she'd be happy to come up and do it. The only problem is she lives in North Carolina. You know, so Rob's face kind of you know kind of, uh, you know he kind of slumps and then she says, but don't worry, she works for the airlines. I'm sure she can come on up anytime. So, so she came up and uh, we. Um, not only did t- testing on her, but we asked them both to go into the scanner and do a uh, what we call an n-back task. It's basically a working memory task that goes, goes from easy to difficult, essentially. And so, um, and these are activation patterns. So this is the twin without cancer. So at the easy level, you can see that she didn't have to activate very much. And then as the task got harder, she activated progressively more and more areas of the brain. And this is a very typical pattern of what you see in, 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 in fMRI studies using this uh, end-back task. Now her sister, on the other hand, even at the easiest task, had to activate many more areas of the brain and had you know, progressively more and more activation as the task got harder. Interestingly enough, the accuracy on the task was almost identical. And their performance on neuropsychological testing outside the scanner was almost identical. So, you know, this is just one set of uh, of twins. Actually, got published in Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is sort of like one of the major coups of uh, publishing, I think. Uh, But, (laughs) but it was the first, I guess. So that was uh, maybe explains why. But it, it, I think it's illustrative. One is that our brain has plasticity, and it can activate alternate brain structures when there is a deficit in the service of maintaining a performance on these neurocognitive tasks. All right. So again, she was able to do the task, but it took a lot more brain activation for her to do that. <coughs> this may also explain, in part, why There's a discrepancy between people's self-report and their performance on neuropsychological testing. Our tests are relatively easy. They're done in a quiet room with a supportive tester who's encouraging you to do the best you can, but no pressure, and there's no right answers, et cetera, et cetera. So in that context, if you can muster some compensatory activation, you may be able to perform normally right so you're you're perceiving that you're having problems and the thing we hear people say often is like yes I can do things but it just feels a lot harder and I can't sustain my attention as long as I as long as I used to and as you might imagine there's a limit to compensatory activation and so what you often hear is someone will tell you I was doing fine I was kind of pushing through and then all of a sudden my brain turned off and part of what you one explanation for that is that you've sort of reached the limit of the compensatory activation, and once you reach that, it's sort of everything kind of shuts down. And then the you know, as they describe it, the fog rolls in, and I just have to walk away from whatever I'm doing. So you know, obviously one set of twins, but I think it illustrates some very interesting results which have then been, been actually replicated in some group studies. So Brenda McDonald and Andy Sakin have done did this study where they uh, demonstrated that you could pre to post chemotherapy you can actually see these red areas represent reductions in volume, brain volume, in gray matter that, and this is one month post chemotherapy. If you follow these women for uh, one year post treatment you see partial recovery but not full recovery of that uh, of that loss of volume. Um, this is a uh, a functional MRI task they did, so this is using that NBAC working memory task again, and it's probably easiest to look at at this area here. So you, this, these are the two cancer groups, this is cancer patients that are exposed to chemotherapy, not exposed to chemotherapy, healthy controls, and part of what you see is there's like an overactivation compared to controls in both the cancer groups prior to beginning treatment. Again, consistent with the deficits we're seeing on neuropsychological testing. This sort of implies that there's a disruption in that information processing system, even bef- that you can see on functional imaging prior to beginning treatment. One month post chemotherapy, you see a reduction, but then one year later, you see a, a return to that sort of overactivation pattern. So, again, it's suggesting that chemotherapy has an impact. And that, if anything, you know, it's sort of there's this initial disruption that is even worse at one year. Interestingly enough, though, if you follow, if you look at women who are now 10 year survivors, this is a study done by the group in the Netherlands, uh, Michiel de Reuter, um, and uh, using a, a similar task, but they use the Tower of London, but it's kind of a similar working memory task, you see actually a pattern of decreased activation in chemotherapy exposed patients compared to controls. So we haven't really done the longitudinal studies where we follow people from pre-treatment to five to ten years post-treatment. Those are very hard studies and expensive studies to do. But one potential explanation is you have this sort of disruption in the information processing system prior to treatment whether it's related somehow to the cancer or some kind of co-occurring risk factors. Early on, and in relatively young women, because these studies were done in women that are in their 40s and 50s and early 60s, there is a capacity for compensatory activation. One of the things we know about aging is you gradually lose the capacity for compensatory activation. So 10 to 20 years later, you may actually see then this this sort of actual deficit or decrease in activation that was seen in the, uh, the de Deroyner study. Uh, again, we need to obviously, that's sort of piecing things together. Ideally, we would have uh, longitudinal studies to actually support that that change in pattern over time. So this, you know, again, as I sort of mentioned earlier, creates some challenges in terms of, of, of of studying cognitive effects. What are, what's the gold standard? Because you have sort of self-report, that doesn't correlate with neuropsychological testing, you know, in part maybe because of compensatory activation. So how do we really um, sort of triangulate around? I mean, it's hard to give, uh, it's hard enough to get people to agree to do neuropsychological testing to get then people into the scanner is another challenge, especially Prior to treatment, so um, these things are not something that kind of fit well in necessarily the, the, the clinical flow of, of uh, uh, you know the one's day-to-day uh, work. So, you know, part of what we're trying to do is to you know really try to understand how these uh, how to how to uh, uh, piece this all together to make to make some sense about it, sense sense out of it. Um, one of the other things we've been very interested in is trying to figure out well, what 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 could potentially be a mechanism for why why do cancer treatments cause cognitive problems in the first place? I mean, part of the reason that this wasn't studied for years and patients weren't really taken seriously is that in fact most of the chemotherapy agents, for example, don't cross the blood-brain barrier very very well. So there's not an obvious explanation for why. Uh, chemotherapy or other cancer treatments should have an impact on cognitive functioning. So one of the hypotheses out there anyway is that it's related to uh, DNA damage. Uh, We know that DNA damage and deficits in DNA repair mechanisms are associated both with risk for cancer and risk for a variety of neurocognitive disorders including Alzheimer's. Uh, If you look at breast cancer patients at diagnosis, they have measurably higher levels of DNA damage compared to controls. We know that our cancer treatments are DNA damaging, in fact, that's part of the therapeutic index. Um, So there's sort of this working hypothesis that DNA damage may be related uh, to cognitive functioning both pre- and post-chemotherapy. So just to to kind of illustrate this, so at pre-diagnosis, well, we're born with a certain, you know, profile of DNA repair genes. Uh, there's an endogenous oxidative stress. Just the, the, just the machinery of cell division causes oxidative stress and causes DNA damage. And then there are the genotoxic exposures. You know. I lived up here. People were worried about uh, heavy metals in the well water. And I went down uh, to New York, which ironically has some of the best water in the world. Surprisingly, the air quality, not so much. So we're all getting exposures, right? So you can imagine that if you have poor DNA repair mechanisms over years, just the endogenous oxidative stress is going to cause an accumulation of DNA damage that you can never quite keep up with. If you've had some genotoxic exposures, you happen to work in an asbestos factory, you smoke, you work with solvents, and there are all kinds of things, you may have show up at pre-treatment with your cognitive problems. Once you're, di- you're diagnosed with cancer, you got your chemotherapy, radiation, endocrine therapies, which can I- all influence DNA damage, and you may have the uh, result as sort of the final common pathway to some of the cognitive functioning problems. So we're actually doing a study now um, looking at this, and we're, so we're evaluating the sort of typical design looking at breast cancer patients. Uh, pre- and post-treatment or exposed to chemotherapy, those who are not, and a group of healthy controls, uh, doing neuropsychological assessment, uh, structural and functional MRI, and then we're measuring DNA damage using the Comet assay. Um, This is just very preliminary results. We just started analyzing this data, but not surprisingly, you'll see that the chemotherapy group has higher, more DNA damage pre- to post-treatment and a healthy control group doesn't really change very much and so now we're in the process of trying to see do these changes in DNA damage relate to changes in cognitive functioning based on our neuropsychological tests and uh, our, our structural functioning uh, stru- functional and structural imaging. Similarly you, could, you can uh, uh, s- draw a similar model on, around inflammation uh, again, inf- chronic inflammation has been associated with increased risk for cancer and neurodegenerative disorders. Uh, Patty Gans has shown that TNF-alpha TNF a- increases is associated with greater reported memory problems and, and reduced uh, brain metabolism and frontal cortex uh, based on uh, uh, PET. Um, and certainly chemotherapy uh, has been associated with... Uh, uh, has also been associated with increases in TNF-alpha, IL-beta, IL-4, IL-6, and associated impairment in memory. This was an ASCO abstract last year. I haven't seen this out in press yet. So one could again propose a similar mechanism: this inflammation pre- and post-treatment that are related to to uh, cognitive problems. I, I actually don't think these are really mutually exclusive. I think uh, you can for some. Probably at-risk individuals you you get this iterative or cyclical process where increasing DNA damage causes an immune response which causes DNA damage and you get this sort of this sort of cycle going but again in this uh, semi uh, well, said so in the same study we've been looking at a variety of cytokines again just this is a very preliminary <laughs> look but you can see these sort of reddish uh, Ours are the, are, are, I, I'm sorry, the green ones are the, near, uh, are the uh, chemotherapy exposed group, so these are changes pre to post treatment. As you'd expect with the healthy controls, almost no change. Interestingly enough, we're seeing changes in some of these, these markers, though, some of these uh, markers of inflammation in our no chemotherapy group as well. So it seems like it's not just the chemotherapy, but it, again, suggesting that there's something about the cancer itself. Uh, or other aspects of the cancer treatment that may, may be related to some of these effects. So most of these women who are not exposed to chemotherapy were on endocrine therapy by the time that they were assessed for the post-treatment uh, assessment. So it may have something to do with, uh, with that as well. So again, we're in the, in the, in the uh, process of trying to put this together with our neuropsychological data and, uh, and imaging data. Um, so, there's also, as you we'll won't be surprised to hear, there's also a genetic story here. So, um, you know, we, we started off looking at a uh, certain uh, gene, ApoE, which has been associated with uh, Alzheimer's, risk for Alzheimer's disease, so people are E4 positive or higher risk for development of Alzheimer's and earlier onset of Alzheimer's, but it turns out that um, people are E4 positive, have... Poorer cognitive outcomes secondary to any kind of brain injury. Um, So, and and including normal aging. So, E4 positive individuals are are, are at higher risk for cognitive decline as they age. So, and I'll show you in a minute we we have some data supporting that it's also a risk factor for cognitive effects of chemotherapy. Um, another group down at the Moffitt Cancer Center, Sir Paul Jacobson and Brent Small, have found that uh, COMT, which is a, neuro-trans, uh, a gene that controls neurotransmitter activity, so valve carriers um, uh, uh, basically metabolize dopamine much more quickly, postsynaptically. so functionally, you, if you're a fast metabolizer, you have lower levels of dopamine, and that turns out to be a, a risk factor for Cognitive decline post cancer treatment as well. So why why ApoE? I mean, if ApoE is related to a a, a lot of functioning, but in this (coughs) arena, we thought, well, one of the one of the uh, uh, one aspect has to do with reduced capacity for neuronal repair and vascular repair, and so it made some sense that if chemotherapy or other cancer treatments were affecting, you know, microvasculature or, or, or neuronal uh, or neurons that deficits in neural repair or vascular repair would be important. Um, interestingly enough, in other areas though, it's also turned out that um, that uh, the cognitive effects of ApoE are modified by smoking history. So let me quickly say, I'm not saying smoking is good for you, all right? <laughs> And I ran off the bat. So the, the, the theory goes that people who are E4 positive have a deficit in nicotinic receptors that is corrected by smoking. So, um, so there's actually, you see this in Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease. You see it in a variety of other disorders. So we were interested in looking at it in our longitudinal data as well. And essentially what you see is that if you're E4 positive and exposed to chemotherapy, and you don't have a smoking history, you do worse than everybody else. Again, this is our measure of processing speed. But if you had a smoking history, um, it moderated that effect. So it's not quite as bad. All right. So we're seeing the same thing uh, that a variety of other folks have seen. Um, so as, interestingly enough, almost all of these women, so we had almost a 50-50 split of between for smokers and non-smokers. Almost the vast majority of them, though, were former smokers. And many of them, in fact, the majority of them had quit smoking 10 plus years ago. So this isn't an, a, an effect of ongoing smoking. So that, that sort of puzzled us. It's like, well, if you're not smoking anymore, how are you correcting your deficit? And interestingly enough, there's some animal data suggesting that it's that, that smoking exposure to nicotine, I should say, uh, in in animals, and adolescent animals, can have a long-term effect, and it looks like it's a, it's a sort of a critical period. And if you think about it, Jim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the vast majority of people who start smoking in any serious way start as adolescents. So we may have this sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, critical window uh, after which, you know, when you stop, you've already kind of corrected your deficit. So it's kind of obviously a lot of speculation here, a lot more work that needs to be done to, to really try to understand if, if this is actually correct, but uh, uh, we're actually trying to replicate this in another study as, as well as are some other folks. So you know, what are, you know, wh- why, why are we studying genetics? I mean it's not just intellectually interesting to see if we can find some uh, uh, kind of risk factors, but it potentially you know, it points to mechanism, but then it also points to potential uh, um, uh, treat has treatment implications. So both, if if we're correct with this neuro uh, this nicotinic receptor uh, hypothesis for ApoE, and then COMT also uh, 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 implicates uh, neurotransmitter dopamine dopaminergic activity in frontal lobes, then it leads to the potential for interventions because you know we don't need to smoke to get exposure to nicotine. Uh, you, we have many drugs that ex- uh, affect nicotinic receptor activity. In fact, in in uh, mild cognitive impairment area, they're using nicotine patches as a potential intervention for cognitive uh, cognitive problems. So. It it potentially points to some uh, interventions uh, and and as as we say here, here, in in animal models you can actually block the effect of chemotherapy by uh, using fluoxetine. So so it leads to at least some hypotheses about how we might be able to intervene uh, to prevent or at least treat some of these cognitive deficits uh, associated with our cancer treatments. Um, Briefly, in terms of some of the animal studies, uh, there's a growing group of people who've been giving chemotherapy and other cancer treatments to rats and mice and you can show uh, behavioral deficits that reflect changes in memory and attention uh, in these animal models. Uh, One of the advantages of doing animals is you can then take out their brains and, and look at what's going on biologically and you find out that chemotherapy exposure actually dis- disrupts hippocampal neuro- neurogenesis. And it turns out there's a group in, Mark Noble's group up in Ro- uh, Rochester, New York, who's shown that the you can disrupt hippocampal neurogenesis at levels of, of drug that are ineffective at killing cancer cells. So one of the thoughts is that we, the old <coughs> mantra is that well, chemotherapy doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier very much. Well, it may turn out that even a little bit of chemotherapy in the brain can have a a very negative effect because, you know, the brain actually is exquisitely sensitive to uh, some of these kinds of toxins. Um, Turns out, again, in animal models that you can show that, you know, drugs like 5-FU that do actually cross the blood-brain barrier can have both acute and delayed effects on white matter tracts. So it's not just, you know, sort of you give the drug and you get an acute effect, but you can see it develop over a longer longer term. Again, hearkening back to that data from Jeff Wafel, who's shown that there's a subgroup of people who seem to continue to deteriorate over time. Um, interestingly enough, there's a number of studies that have shown that antioxidants can block these effects. So this is and by a colleague uh, at uh, Cornell who gave, uh, gave rats uh, doxorubicin and acycophosphamide, or vehicle, and looked at uh, hippocampal neurogenesis. As you expect, uh, he saw this the reduction in neurogenesis, and he gave four different uh, antioxidants, two of which were effective in blocking the effect. So suggesting that one of the mechanisms that whereby chemotherapy is inducing some of these cognitive changes may be through uh, increasing oxidative stress. Um, Doesn't necessarily translate directly into the clinic, I'm not sure that high dose uh, antioxidants are are what the oncologist would want to be giving uh, along with chemotherapy, but again leads to a suggestion of potential mechanism. So in the, in the last few minutes, I want to kind of talk about well, a couple other topics, one of which is this, this whole notion that a number of uh, people are getting uh, sort of kind of concerned, I guess is the word to use, that that our, chemo's, our cancer treatments may be sort of altering the trajectory or accelerating aging on a basic biological level. And, you know, if you if you think about aging, we don't really know what the biology of aging is exactly. But if you look at any textbook, the sort of typical sub- suspects are accumulation of DNA damage, shortening of telomeres, chronic inflammation, increased oxidative stress, and depletion of stem cell reserve. Well, if you think about what do our cancer treatments do, well, they kind of hit on all of those areas, right? Um, and so there's again some concern that on a, on a very uh, sort of basic biological level, we may be altering that trajectory so that rather than can't cancer or chemo that's, you know, a specific drug is having a specific effect on the on the brain or some brain area that, that may also be happening, you may all actually be altering how people age in a variety of ways, not, not just in... Uh, uh, not just cognitively. There's actually some researchers down at, at Memorial who are looking at uh, the impact of chemotherapy on skin aging, for example. I mean, and, and those of you who see patients, I mean, how many times have you heard that after, after treatment they come in, and they say, "I just I look in the mirror and I look older." I mean, it's just it's a common kind of a comment that you'll hear. Um, you know, unfortunately, our brain ages as well. Uh, volume reductions, decreased white matter integrity, decreased vascularization, decreased neurotransmitter activity. So again, there may be some kind of interactive effects between our cancer treatments. So, actually, Arthi Huria, who you had been at uh, Memorial, is now at City of Hope out in California, and I have are looking at a, a, a study. Um, we, we're just we've just opened the study actually. So it's um, looking at. Uh, Basically women who were with breast cancer were diagnosed at age 60 or above and received their treatment and are now 5 to 15 year survivors and we're going to be looking at those again exposed to chemotherapy, not exposed to chemotherapy and healthy controls and what we're really looking at is rather than the uh, acute effects of treatment, we're looking at the trajectory of cognitive change over years because we know that older adults there's a slow decline in uh, cognitive uh, performance on cognitive testing. And the hypothesis we're really looking at is, you know, if you you don't have a history of cancer and you're aging normally, you'll see a slow decline. Now, maybe cancer survivors just have kind of a phase shift. So they they had some impact to their treatment, but then they just age normally. Or is there some or a subgroup of people who have this accelerated aging kind of profile? Again, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I think it's very likely that there's a group that fit maybe most people who fit this category, but there may be a very vulnerable subgroup that, uh, you know, whether it's genetically based or uh, because of other exposures, et cetera, are exquisitely uh, uh, um, sensitive to, to the change uh, to, to changes with aging and, and sort of have this accelerated pattern. Again, we're looking at APOE, as a title applied, we're looking at APOE and smoking and other things that might increase these risk factors, including, uh, you know, measures of frailty, uh, uh, etc. So, uh, maybe in a few years I'll have uh, an update on that. Um, so, you know, the other, just, this, just to very briefly mention, if we're thinking about uh, cancer treatments affecting aging, well, it turns out that we have this growing cohort of adult survivors of childhood cancer. And they're very interesting because they're in their, you know, now some of them in the 30s and 40s, and many of them are 30 to 40 years post-treatment. And so we've had all these successes of improving cure rates in children, but what you find, and uh, Kevin Effinger and the folks down at St. Jude's with the uh, uh, cancer childhood, childhood cancer sur- survivor study, have shown that in your, these, once these uh, adult survivors hit the 30s and 40s, the rates of cardiac and pulmonary disease, diabetes, endocrine function, having all these diseases that you associated with people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it um, turns out that they're also at an increased risk for neurocognitive impairment and uh, changes in, in gray and white Matter uh, based on MRI. So, you know, if there's some traction to this idea that you are you know, changing the trajectory of aging, this poten- that's potentially one way of, of understanding what's going on with this population as well. Uh, and then very briefly on, on interventions, and I, I don't leave this you know, to the end uh, for a brief discussion. Uh, because I'm not interested in intervention. It's just unfortunately there's not been a lot of work done on intervention so far, although that's actually increasing. And so hopefully over the next few years, we'll have much more data. So from a pharmacologic point of view, almost all the work has been done with uh, some sort of psychostimulants. And for some people, they're very effective. They can be very helpful, but they're not very specific. Right? I mean, probably all of us would do a little bit better with some Adderall on board at you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, it's not a very you know kind of specific sort of treatment. Other folks have been looking at things like ginkgo biloba. Unfortunately, uh, those studies have been primarily negative. Um, there have been folks looking at cognitive rehabilitation interventions. As I mentioned, Rob Ferguson, who is here, who is now up at Maine Medical Center, has developed a cognitive rehabilitation um, Intervention that uh, uh, for breast cancer survivors with some initial interesting results in terms of efficacy. He's now taking it and using it up in Maine. You know they're big into telemedicine, so he's actually delivering this over the internet. Uh, so he's doing some interesting work there. There's some uh, folks that have been doing work with some of the computer-based programs. Uh, so Shelly Kessler out at uh, Stanford has some uh, interesting pilot data with Lumosity it's not just a big ad campaign, It seems to maybe actually help with some of the, uh, for some populations. Uh, Elizabeth Ryan in our group has been studying a, a program called Cogmed, again with some interesting preliminary results. So I think there's a growing um, uh, body of research that's being done in, in terms of both the medication side and the uh, cognitive rehabilitation side, and, and as I say, hopefully over the next three or four years, some of that data will be maturing and we'll have some, you know, better interventions to begin to offer, offer folks. I mean, at, at Memorial, actually, our occupational therapists are the ones who do a lot of cognitive rehabilitation, so we've been collaborating with them on some studies. Um, people are also doing exercise studies, you know, exercise is good for you for everything, including cognitive functioning, at least as we, you know, in old, elder adults, uh, it's also protective, So um may, may likely uh, be effective in, in our cancer survivor populations as well. Um, so you know, I could basically have said all this already, so. So in terms of, just to wrap up, in terms of future directions, I mean, I think one of the things we've learned over the years is that it's not all chemotherapy, that cancer, uh, that many aspects of cancer and cancer treatments affect cognitive functioning. If you're trying to develop some model for understanding mechanisms by which cancer treatments uh, affect cognition, you really have to take into account the fact that people come to can- the cancer diagnosis with some cancer cognitive deficits. And those deficits pre-treatment are actually predictive of their post-treatment cognitive problems. We need more work in terms of trying to integrate data from self-report, neuropsychological testing, and imaging. Um, Hopefully some of the work uh, from animal models will begin not only to help us understand mechanism, but will lead to some more targeted type treatments. Um, I think one of the, the, the ways in which we're sort of shifting, or we're kind of going moving towards this perspective of, you know, aging across the lifespan and that cancer treatments can interfere with brain development in children and adolescents and interact with chronic illnesses and frailty and sort of normal changes in, in the elderly, and so that we need to kind of understand how cancer treatments affect the trajectory of, of, of aging on a variety of levels, including uh, cognitive aging. It's very likely that the risk for uh, cognitive problems There's inter a complex interaction of sort of vulnerability factors are age, cognitive reserve, genetics, lifestyle, environmental exposure, smoking, drinking, et cetera, uh, and sort of the pattern of syst- systematic sort of damage and loss of kind of re- redundancy or resiliency in, our, in the biological systems and then specific treatments that people are, get, are, are receiving. Um, you know, unfortunately, the, probably the two most vulnerable groups children and the elderly have been the least studied in this population. So almost all of the studies have been focused on sort of the middle age, probably from 30 to 55. And so we really need to, and you know, again, we and others are beginning to focus on the elderly, and there's an increasing focus on on, um, uh, on, uh, on children and uh, adult survivors of childhood cancers. So. You know, as you might expect, nobody can do this kind of work alone. There's a long list of collaborators. And also just want to thank our sponsors. Most of our funding comes from the NCI uh, and a variety of foundations. So why don't I stop there and leave a, at least a couple minutes for, for questions. Thank you very much.
0: pack a day within a week of relapsing. So maybe there's something about nicotine receptor receptor induction that gets modified by by smoking when it's when it's when kids when kids smoke during, yeah. the, during that period of
1: development. Yeah, I mean I think that that's I mean that, that's at least the, the hypothesis, right, that there's a critical period and it has something to do with with you know some interaction between nicot- nicotine exposure and the developing brain. Mm-hmm. Cuz otherwise why would it have an effect that lasts for you know forty fifty years, uh, you know after the, after the exposure. So I, but I mean that you know it's it's a it's a good it's a great hypothesis. But I think there's a lot more work to be done to try to really understand yeah, yeah, whether the there's going on. yeah exactly. variable. Oh, they are. And it's, it's, it's I didn't mean to imply in the childhood cancer survivors it's not all chemotherapy and in fact you know in, in the early days uh, uh, these kids were exposed to a lot of radiation uh, so some of the lymphoma patients were getting mantle uh, radiation into the chest and to the heart and be, before they learned how to try to you know focus it more um, they are so, and then there are sort of immediate side effects of their treatment. So, that disrupts their endocrine system. I mean, a lot of uh, you know young girls never develop normally in terms of you know menstrual cycles, et cetera. So, it's you know in that area, it's it's, it's a real confluence of a, a variety of factors that then lead to their risk for these these kind of medical problems, uh, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And include, including risk for secondary cancers, which I didn't even mention, which is a, is a high risk.
0: But do, do you think their atherosclerosis progresses more quickly? Are they getting heart attacks? And they things are. That, yep. Things that they wouldn't get until their 50s.
1: Yes. I mean, if you look at uh, Kevin Effinger has a uh, a great paper, I think it's in the New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine, um, showing because in, in these studies, in the in Childhood cancer survivor study—they've been tracking these kids and then their siblings. So, you know, non-cancer affected siblings, and and the, um, you know, I forget the number, but it's it's astounding. It's like 40% of the childhood cancer survivors have one or more life-threatening illnesses by the time they're in their 30s, compared to their siblings. So. It's it's dramatic.
2: Yeah. So, w- w- what do you think is the impact of just being diagnosed with a disease like cancer? Because it's not a common disease. It's, an, it's not an easy disease for many of the patients to digest. Even there were reports of AIDS patients having cognitive problems. So is it just the impact of a disease where a patient knows that he has to fight for a number of years, and whether his life is in, mm-hmm. what, what's the status of the life? So, if an endpoint is his cognitive response before he knows he's diagnosed and after he knows he's diagnosed. Right. So that is one of the critical points because is it just the manifestation of the disease uh, and his thought process and trying to find out reasons why he's suffering this is resulting into this, that can be one of the major criteria why well, there's a sharp decline in some people.
1: Well, so you know people have looked I I, I agree with you. And I think that this is an element that actually has not been studied very carefully I mean most of us have measured have measures of anxiety and depression and stress but I don't think we've looked at uh, the impact of stress in a very sophisticated way so to be able to add that into the equation but we also you know we certainly know that you know chronic stress and high levels of stress have can have an impact on the brain so makes sense, that that would be a component as well. Yeah, Peter? We can't let you go without me commenting. This, this is the most thorough uh, review, comprehensive review of content repairment that I've heard. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> other questions? Or people probably need to run off to other things. So, Thank you very much for your attention.